Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. Top of the morning to you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. That's right. I'm a wee bit Irish, one of many cultures mixed into the genetic melting pot that is the Sigler family. A little bit of German, a little bit of Welsh, a little bit of Irish, a little bit of Sklorno. We're real mixed bunch. I'm recording this one early as a real girl herself and I are taking a short jaunt to hang with pals for St. Paddy's Day. As far as I know, by the time this episode posts, the nukes will have already flown and will all be right and proper fooked, but I hope not. I have finished GFL Book 7 Second Draft and I have started work on the Crypt Book 1. Finally. So far, it's looking very cool, although I'm not yet to the writing of the fiction part of the process. This week is all organizing the massive amount of material and research I already have in place. Hopefully, the writing will begin soon. I will tell you right now, this one is going to be a banger. That is it for my jibber-jab. Let me get you caught up on the story, then we're all going to go dye things green. Previously on The Stone Wolves, the Olorin and Diana Zero came out of punch space and into the jaws of Thorn's trap. By disguising the arrow as the Olorin, the latter was able to go cold and stay hidden while Thorn's forces destroyed the arrow. After secretly landing the Olorin on MT-734, Killian and his crew prepare for the final assault on Thorn's research facility. Chapter 22 Antidote The sleight of hand had worked. Redwire was guiding the Olorin toward the surface of MT-734 which gave Killian the time to do what he had to do. He pulled the wooden crate out from beneath his bunk. A promise to stop taking lives, or at the very least, to not seek out lives to take. Had he been a pacifist? Not exactly. No one in the smuggling game could avoid violence altogether. But for the last 40 years, he'd done whatever was necessary to make a living by a means other than murder. At Rurgirk, he'd failed. The monster had come out. The monster had eaten. And now it was time for the monster to feast. Kelly knew damn well that there was no peaceful option with Thorn, that he could not slip into a Vermada base the way he'd slipped into the borehole. There was only one way to get this done, and that way was to wade through a river of blood. And wasn't this why Killian had joined the guild in the first place? Why he'd let Fanaka recruit him? To stop evil? To stop the slaughter of innocent sentience? Yes, it was. He knelt, absently moving aside a Miller lager bottle he'd emptied during one bender or another. He deactivated the crate's lock using three different biometric scans. He opened it. Inside, a relic of the past. The Orphaner. The stubby hatchet blade made from citadel steel. 
five preloaded revolver cylinders in a neat row above it, each cylinder holding five 700 caliber cartridges. Enough ammo and firepower to start and end a war. He was already wearing his void cloak. Now he would carry the weapon that went with it, that made him an icon, a Purist Nation shadow agent, a Zoroastrian guild destroyer of life. Killian knew he should have gotten rid of both things decades ago. He hadn't. He'd been through too much with both. He'd deluded himself into believing that holding on to such artifacts would be a constant reminder of his sins, but that was a weak lie, thin at best. He'd kept them because somewhere deep inside, he'd known. He'd known that the ghosts of his past would rise from the dead. He'd known that the killer would kill again. Killian lifted the tray that held the orphaner and the revolver cylinders. Beneath it, more monster cartridges, three rows of ten, each round nestled in foam, tips gleaming a dull chrome black. Neatly folded up beneath them, his thigh holster, custom crafted to carry the big, heavy revolver. And, sitting there, below the holster, the deadliest piece of kit he possessed. It wasn't on the foam, not nestled into a perfect slot like the bullets, the cylinders, the holster, and the orphaner itself, because this last bit of evil was an afterthought. He barely remembered putting it in there. Had that been ten years ago? Fifteen? He wasn't sure, and it didn't matter. The bit of evil? A small med injector, with a vial of pale orange fluid already loaded. For whatever chemical reason, the fluid had no expiration date. It would be as effective as the day he'd acquired it. Umaphine, a substance that nullified all effects of Nasdor. Killian reached out a trembling hand, lifted the injector. He held it up toward his cabin ceiling light. He couldn't help but see his own withered fingers, couldn't help but wonder exactly when he'd gotten so damn old. Injecting the umaphine meant it was over, all over. He was letting the monster out of its cage. No collar, no chains, no dark space he could lock it away in. The PUV James Keeling had changed him, forever and ever. The Nasdor held some of those changes at bay. The Nasdor had let him be human again, at least most of the time. He wasn't up for this mission. He was too slow, too weak, too dull. If he wanted to keep his crew alive, if he wanted to find this bomb and destroy it, if he wanted to protect his only living son, then he had to bring in the creature that was up for the job. He had to bring out the beast. He had to bring out the killer. No, he would not do that. He didn't have to abandon the decades of work he'd spent trying to become a better sentient. It would come to violence, no doubt, and he would do what needed to be done, but he could do that without unleashing the murder machine he'd once been. But what if he couldn't? He slipped the injector into an inner pocket of his void cloak, then stood and started buckling on the holster.
Aya had fired guns before. The lethal kind. Many times. The Fafner Project had exploited her mind, but they had not ignored her body. They'd trained her how to use firearms, how to fight with a knife, even how to kill with her bare hands. Not that she'd been good at those lessons, but they'd taught her. She looked at the weapon in her hands. A Pythagoras Y-57. An assault weapon used by Tower Marines for both planetary and interstellar personal combat. Squat and compact, just under four kilograms, fully loaded, mind you, and with caseless ammo, it was ideal for the close confines of narrow ship corridors and, coincidentally, for extremely small-framed humans. That's a good weapon, Goldman said. You have a fire one before? Aya shook her head. No, but I'm familiar enough. I'll be fine. I'm sure you will. Remember the magazines are 90 rounds each. Three rate-of-fire selectors, single, three-shot burst, and full auto. Keep it on three-shot, but if you have to use it, you keep pulling that trigger until what you're pointing at stops moving. Understand? She looked up from the boxy weapon, stared at the face of the man who had led them here. A kind face, but with cold eyes. Most people knew Yitzhak Goldman from his numerous endorsements for everything from carbonated beverages to palm-up implants. The ad-friendly version of him was the lovable older brother type, the kind of sentient that everyone liked, that everyone respected, but never really saw as a challenge. That face, like so much about this man, was a lie. Whatever his name, Yitzhak Goldman, Redwire, whatever he'd been called when he was born— This man was deadly business. I got it, Aya said. Thanks. Goldman nodded once, then focused on his own gear. He, too, would carry a Y-57. Skipper had stashed a crate of the weapons in Beans' shop, somewhere beneath the piles of old cables, spare parts, and broken refrigerators. It was one thing to always aspire to do less harm, but the Oleron was in the smuggling business, and that business was dangerous. Aya didn't want to hurt anyone. She certainly didn't want to kill anyone. To everything, there is a time. She'd used the non-lethal tough luck gun ever since she'd come aboard the Oleron. She'd used it on that kid on Wilson 4. He was just a small-time crook, trying to make a buck. She'd carried it into the borehole, knowing that the staffers there were mostly workaday types collecting a paycheck. But this, this was different. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, It's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Vermada, a group of terrorists that other terrorists thought were beyond dangerous. The Vermada killed sentience without a thought, killed thousands at a time. And here, on MT734, they were possibly preparing to kill millions maybe billions. The sentients who worked at this facility had been there for years, had chosen to be part of the Vermada. Did they deserve to die? Aya didn't know. This wasn't the time for that question. It would only get in the way of doing what had to be done. Goldman had put the Oleron down without incident. The problem with creating a disguised terrorist base was that said terrorists couldn't deploy the usual array of sensors. The Vermada base wasn't the borehole. It didn't have a tenth of the borehole sensor array. Once the Oleron approached the surface and was running in full stealth mode, there was almost no way the Vermada facility's tech could have detected the ship. The Vermada base was not quite two kilometers away. There was a chance, a good chance, that Aya and the others would be able to reach it before the bad guys even knew they were there. Once they reached it, she had no idea what would happen. Aya Omiata planned ops. She wasn't wired to be an actual operator. She set the Y-57 down, checked on what would be her primary weapon in this fight. Peaches. Aya would control it, not Zan, not Beans. The small, fast watchbot would, hopefully, give her the information and data access she needed to unleash her Fafner Project skill set on the Vermada base. Peaches was as ready to go as it could be, so I double-checked her armored exosuit. The armor, like the Y-57, was from the Tower military. It had been acquired long before Aya's arrival or Goldman's. Hers was a bit too big, his a bit too small. The pressurized armor let its wear operate in multiple environments, including the vacuum of space. Dull black helmet, chest plates and jointed sleeves, the same for the leg, abdomen, and crotch protection. The rig stored five hours worth of oxygen. Meant for combat, the armor held a store of smart gel that sealed punctures. I had tried not to think that most punctures would come from bullets. Nice that a suit could seal holes while the person wearing it could not. As good as the armor was, it wasn't state-of-the-art. Surplus, at best, probably two decades old, possibly older. She hoped it wouldn't be put to the test. Aya looked at herself and at Goldman, and she almost laughed. 
They looked like a before and after military recruitment ad. Are you scrawny and tiny, but you want to protect your homeland? Then sign up for military service and we'll tweak your DNA to make you a big ol' apex badass. You stay b b behind me, I am Papaya, and we'll be fine. She looked to Beans, in his hulking Ursa Major schmeck that seemed to take up half the cargo hold. He looked like a bipedal tank, cobbled together from three different tanks, from three different species, from three different wars, but with mech legs so thick they could deadlift the Oleron itself. She had no idea what the stubby shoulder cannon fired, didn't really want to know. She suspected it could put big holes in big things. A six-barreled minigun on his left forearm, a smaller automatic rifle cabled to his right. Smaller, yet still three times the size of her own weapon. You can count on that, Beansy, Aya said. Viden fluttered across the hold. In her mouth flaps, she held a traditional hurrah long blade, a two-meter scandium aluminum shaft that housed a laser generator and was graced on one side with a long, sleek, crystal axe head. She must have brought it over from Diana's arrow during the time in punch space, before the Vermada fighters destroyed the ship. Long blades were sleek, elegant, and light, as too much weight made it hard for a hurrah to fly. Aya had seen many movies with hurrah using weapons like those. In pre-industrial times, long blades were the refined weapon of the upper class, that species equivalent of a human sword. As technology progressed, and humans replaced swords with firearms, the hurrah had modified their time-honored close-combat weapon to kill at long range as well. Even Zan was ready to go in, although she would stay with the ship and only enter combat if things went bad. She walked around the hold in her repaired bipedal schmeck. Beans hadn't had much time to fix it properly. Somewhere in his bottomless pile of parts, though, he'd found a replacement leg a leg that was red and several centimeters shorter than its opposite. To accommodate the height difference, Beans had mounted a block of chipped wood to the bottom of the foot. For the first time Aya had seen, Zan had opted for no stuffed animal face. Zan's head looked like a dull metal skull, scratched and dented, as if it had been buried, then recently dug up and put back into service. The Oleron crew wasn't screwing around. I hoped everyone would survive. The skipper walked into the hold. He wore a tower-made exosuit like Aya and Redwire wore, except his fit with his void cloak over the top. The cloak's bottom edge dragged across the deck. If the man ever stopped hunching and stood up straight, that wouldn't happen. The odd cables that curled up from the cloak's right arm and shoulder, had been cleaned. They gleamed with a soft, internal light. He had the exosuit's black helmet secured to his back. Was he going to wear it, or did the void cloak have some kind of recessed exo-capable rig? Aside from the helmet, the cloak seemed to hang on him as it had back at the borehole. That meant he wasn't wearing the same full-size air tanks that she and Goldman wore. The void cloak had to have its own air supply. Otherwise, Skipper would have to rely on the small emergency tanks that lined the exosuit's waist. She saw a leather holster strapped to Skipper's left thigh, a holster as big as Aya's chest. 
The handle that protruded from it looked like a polished tree trunk. The Orphaner, a hand cannon that ended in a stubby sword and kicked out 700 caliber rounds. You're left-handed, Aya said. Of course you are. Just like him. Him. Quentin Barnes. Last chance, Skipper said. Anyone wants to sit this one out, say so now. Once you leave this ship with me, you're a soldier under my command. We will finish this mission, no matter what it takes. Goldman stepped up to him. Just like old times, brother, the younger man said. The weapons are hot and the cause is righteous. Viden fluttered over, hovered next to the two humans. One last fight, the hurrah said. The Krizatu will finish what they started so long ago, for recoil. Goldman nodded. And for hopscotch. The smallest sneer, here then gone, twisted Skipper's lip. And for my wife, he said, and my children. For the stone wolves, and for everything that Thorn and the Vermada have destroyed. Skipper looked to the hulking multi-tank. Beans, you ready? Where his milkiness fights, I fight. Where Skipper fights, I fight. I am ready to take a foot and shove it up the anus of any Hansel Gretel out there. The little guy would probably never get that phrase right. Skipper turned his dead eyes on Aya. And how about you, noob? You sure you don't want to stay here? That was exactly what she wanted to do. She was terrified of what was about to happen, but it had to be done. The League of Planets trained her as a weapon, a thing of evil maybe not unlike the very Vermada they were about to attack. They taught her how to sit back and plan the deaths of others while she remained safe and warm in her too-clean bunker. Not anymore. So many were at risk, including Skipper, Beans, and Zan. Aya's family. I'm going in. He studied her for a moment, those cold eyes judging, evaluating. You're so young, he said. So damn young. So was I, Goldman said. A lot younger than she is now. I is an adult. She knows what's at stake. Skipper's stare held Aya for a moment more. Then he blinked a few times, looked around at everyone. Zan, he said. If none of us make it back, then... Then I die here as well, the Schmeck said, sharply cutting Skipper off. I will attack. I will not look to my own safety while the fate of the galaxy is at stake. Nor do I have any wish to continue on alone. The exo sounded as cold and brusque as she always did, but there was also a softness in her words, and vulnerability as well. The Ulrin's crew was her family, a family she did not care to live without. I understand, Skipper said. Crew, lock and load. He pulled the void cloak hood over his head. He pressed something in the collar. A clear mask folded out from the hood, covered his face. I wondered what other secrets the void cloak held in its folds. Aya put on her exosuit helmet, locked it in place. 
She tapped the small keypad built into her forearm plating, heard the hiss of air cycling. After a few seconds, three soft beeps signified that her suit was airtight. Make no mistake, Skipper said. I am in charge. Do what I say, when I say. And if there is any gray area, your lives matter, theirs do not. Make your decisions quickly and aim true. Aya took a deep breath, tasting the slight metallic tang of the processed air. She checked that the connection to Peaches was live in her HUD. It was. Then she hefted her assault rifle. It was time to go. Killian Carbonaro felt his void cloak's weight, the heavy garment hanging from him like the warm embrace of an old friend. The soft soles of his combat boots pressed down on the rough granite ground. No atmosphere to dull the stars here. The canopy overhead was a dark sphere with a thousand diamond-bright holes punched into it. His team moved in silence. Beans had even found a way to dull the thud of his Ursa Major suit's huge feet. With no atmosphere to carry sound, his servos were as noiseless as if he hadn't been moving at all. Aya scanned ahead for any sensors that could detect their approach. The few she found, she hacked, making the team effectively invisible. If Killian closed his eyes and took a few steps, he might fool himself into thinking he was hoofing it across a rocky area of Earth. But when he opened his eyes, no amount of self-delusion could make him think he was anywhere but on the vast, barren, granite hills of MT-734. He'd lived on Earth for a couple of years. It wasn't hard to see some of the similarities between that planet and this one. They both had cores, primarily made of molten nickel and iron. Their gravity was almost identical, although Earth was slightly larger in diameter, and the crusts of both were predominantly granite-type variants. From there, though, things got different in a hurry. Earth had a wonderful atmosphere that had given rise to the evolution of humanity, although those same humans had done everything possible to mess up that atmosphere. MT-734 had no atmosphere at all. Earth had soil. Earth had rain. Despite humanity's seemingly endless spread across the surface, there were still large swaths of land where the native flora flourished. MT-734 had no water, no soil, no plants of any kind. Earth was mostly warm, mostly wet, and was awash in nearly constant winds of varying intensities. MT-734 was cold, bone-dry, and as still as a petrified corpse. Tighten up, he said. Don't fall behind. Aya, is our signal chain still good? As his team marched across the sterile, broken surface, Killian looked over his shoulder. He was at the head of the pack. Redwire came next, looking like something out of an action-adventure movie with Aya a step behind. Their flat black armor made them look like half-shadows cast by hovering ghosts. Beans, in his hulking battle-schmeck suit, brought up the rear. Vidan rode somewhere on his metal back. Without any significant atmosphere, the hurrah couldn't fly. She could crawl well enough, using her wingtips and tail to waddle along like an extinct earth creature called a mudskipper, 
but that movement was inefficient and a huge energy drain for her. Until the team got inside the facility, she would ride on someone else. The hurrah carried her long blade and wore an odd, oblong mask across her wide mouth. The mask let her breathe. Unlike the rest of the crew, she didn't need an exosuit to protect her skin. For as delicate as they were, hurrah were amazing survivors. We're in the groove tube, Skip, Aya said, her quiet voice in his combat. Peaches has reached the facility, is sending back the sights. Tight routing in place, we have zero signal leakage. As soon as I map the facility's frequency web, I can make us invisible to anybody there. Working on it now. Killian faced forward again, keeping his eyes on the cracked, uneven ground. Groove tube. Any Benny. Maybe someday she'd talk like a normal person. But if she did, maybe he'd miss her being, well, being her. Killian and the others were on a two-click hump to what might be the Vermada's most important asset. And yet, thanks to that slang-slinging girl, the evil bastards would have no idea what was coming. That's how good Aya Omiata was. She was no random waif picked up from the street. She was brilliant and had been trained by the best. Had she been alive 40 years earlier, she could have been one of the Krizatsu, an incredibly skilled specialist working with a team of incredibly skilled specialists. Killian wondered, and not for the first time, if Fanaka had been working multiple angles. Had Fanaka turned on her old mates? Yes. Had she been willing to murder Killian and take Redwire to Thorn? Yes. Had Fanaka needed Aya Omiyata to pull off that plan? The answer to the last question was a firm maybe. Fanaka had been resourceful, like no other sentient Killian had ever worked with. She would have known that she might not survive her betrayal-filled effort. She would have known that even if she died in the process, Killian might go on his merry way, with a comms genius trained in high-level military ops in tow. Maybe Fanaka had really brought I in as kind of a contingency plan. If Killian and I survived and Fanaka did not, would Killian finally go after Thorn? If that had been Fanaka's plan, Killian wouldn't have been the least bit surprised. Because here they were. I have visual, I said, patching it through. The HUD in Killian's void cloak mask lit up with images of the facility. A two-story industrial building surrounded by nothing but expanses of broken granite. Excellent, Redwire said. Our spy sketches were pretty much spot on. Hopefully the rest of the intel is just as accurate. Killian dared to hope that was the case. A staff of 50 eggheads with only five trained guards versus three-fifths of one of history's deadliest and most effective commando teams, plus a walking tank? He liked those odds. He liked them a lot. One click to go. They'd be there in minutes. His combud crackled with a sizzle of static. It's Zan, Aya said. She's got an alert. I'm putting her through. Zan was breaking signal silence? Killian felt a sinking feeling. Had he been stupid enough to believe this might go as planned? Incoming, Zan said. 
two ships en route, headed directly toward the facility. Landing ETA is five minutes. From what I can gather, they look like small EFTs, the kind that would have been attached to the skinless when it was lost. EFTs. Expeditionary Fast Transport Ships. Small vessels designed to carry a light cargo load. Cargo and or troops. Yes, Killian had been stupid enough to believe. Pick up the pace, he said. And Aya, make sure we stay off their radar. Our lives depend on it. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.